Hello and welcome to the first episode of 2021, recorded on New Year's Day. This is actually the second time I've recorded this episode, and to be very honest, it's because I went for a massage, and in between the anxiety of thinking that the person giving me a massage was going to touch my bum hole or my wiener, I was... um. I was just thinking about the podcast and how I was going to come across because this is a this is a sketchy topic. It's drugs again. So I've spoken about drugs before on the episode with uh, Adam Strauss on psychedelics, and today I'm talking about a book by Johan Hari called Chasing the Scream. It's about addiction and it's about drugs, and I recorded a 40 minute episode, and I just don't think I did the book justice. And I think I might have come across in a way that I wouldn't want to come across in a way. So I don't censor anything here. I'm not going to edit bits out. I thought I'd just restart it. Because that's better. I'm still going to say everything I need to say. There's just a few things that I needed to say a little bit more on. So lucky you, you get a revisited version. And like I said, it's the new year. So happy fucking new year, everyone. Hope you had a good day or time or evening, whatever you did. Um, I was in bed by 9.30. Reading this book about addiction and also me being a little bit of a twat on the booze on Christmas Eve has helped me come to the decision that in 2021, since uh, a, a Baileys and coffee that I had on Christmas Day, no drop of alcohol shall be passing these lips. The reason for that is I was a twat on Christmas Eve. I was irresponsible and I was reckless. And I was giving myself a real hard time about it. But like I say, I give this advice all the time. I say to people, rolling in the muck is not the best way of getting clean. It's one of my favourite quotes from Aldous Huxley in A Brave New World. And you know what? The advice you give is the advice you need. I needed to get over it. All I can do, as opposed to not being a twat, and thinking about it all the time, is I could just behave a little bit better next time. And now you're probably wondering, oh, how were you a twat, Ed? Well, I wasn't a twat to anyone. I was a twat to myself. I was just reckless. I chose to drive my bike without a helmet at about two in the morning. I got lost in a country. I have no idea how to get around. And I was then pulled over by the police, and they tried to squeeze some money out of me. And I'd lost my wallet. I also lost my shirt and my hat. And that wasn't great. Both of which have turned up since. But yeah, I was just a bit of an idiot. And and I then thought back over 2020. And about the times when I have drank. Because I don't drink often. And do you know what? I didn't think of one good decision that I'd made when I was drunk. Or one time that I had a really good time where I couldn't have had that sober. So I've made the decision. No booze. Booze you lose. That's my motto for the year. Um, but also, if anyone does see me out, I'm still allowed to do. Um, I'm still allowed to smoke weed if I want to. Um, obviously, if it's legal wherever I am, um, or anything else that I fancy, just not alcohol, okay? And definitely not cocaine, because I feel like that is uh, devil dust. It's not good for your brain. But anything else that will give me a fun time, might, I might have a crack at it. But right now, I'm saying no booze at all. So if you see me out, and if you see a drink in my hand, give me a slap. Okay? That's that bit over. Now, this episode is going to be about chasing the scream. 
it is a book about addiction, which could be a sensitive topic for some people. So instead of doing what I did last time, saying, oh, if you're going to be offended, just don't listen. What I'm doing in the description of this episode is putting a link to mind.co.uk, the charity. They've got a whole bunch of resources. So if you're affected by addiction or if you know someone who is being an addict at the moment there's loads of places there that you can go for information although i would definitely recommend reading this book if you know someone that is struggling with addiction or you think you might be on the verge of doing so yourself on the subject of mind me and the bookmark boys have teamed up to make some bookmarks and half of the proceeds of the bookmarks are going to mind charity so i'll also put a link in the description for the bookmarks they're on etsy it's about three quid something for the bookmarks. And guess what you get for that? You get a bookmark and you also get to give some money to charity, which is great. Let's start the year off right by giving some money away. Now, before I get into the episode, one final thing, you've heard me talk about it before, is BetterHelp and it's online therapy. Now, I want everyone to get therapy, but I don't care whether you go face-to-face or if you go online. If you choose to go online, Support the podcast by using the link that I've got for you. You get 10% off your first month, so you save about 20, 25 quid. It'll be about 180 quid for your first month, 200 for your second. If you did one thing this year, apart from reading, of course, and you gave therapy a go for eight weeks, your life would definitely change for the better, and you'd definitely be thanking me. But some people will not be ready. For those that are ready... If you do want to get in touch with a therapist, it's within 48 hours. What better way to start a year? If you don't like that therapist, guess what? You can change them for free as many times as you like. Whenever things happen during your week, you're like, do you know what? I want to chat to my therapist about that. You message them on their own app that they've got. They've helped millions of people around the world, and I'm proud to say that they're a sponsor of the podcast. So if you do want to get therapy this year, and you want it online, you don't want it face-to-face, then better help is the place to go betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read and just like all the other things that I've just said there's a link in the description for you but let us get on with the episode I can't believe it took me so long to read this book Lucy Lord bought me this book shout out to Lucy Lord the provider of all my favorite books in maybe April or May I can't remember when it was but thank god she did and I left it sat there because the one thing that put me off about it is the words are really, really, really fucking small. And I'm talking like they're kind of like Bible level small. Not quite, but very, very small. And there's a lot of pages, thick old book, but it is deceptive because most of the, there's about a hundred pages of the book that are just notes and in the index. So it's about 320 pages of just small words. So I was a little bit intimidated by it. I'll admit that and I didn't bother. But I'm glad I read it when I did, because hell of a book to close the year out with. It was actually the like book that preceded. I'm going to say preceded and think that's the right word. Lost Connections by Johan Hari, which just so happens to be one of my other favourite books of the year. And the whole idea of the book is that the opposite of addiction is connection. And then Johan Hari felt like he kind of left his foot in the door there. And that he just, it, was, it wasn't it was useful just to say, oh, you just need connection. So he thought he'd write lost connections and, and how to get people connected again. Because his life had been affected by addiction. His ex-partner was an addict and his cousin was an addict too. 
So I think that's what kind of motivated him to head off around the world and speak to all the people that he spoke to in this book. Because there's a lot of work that went into this book. It is a very, very mature look at the war on drugs in the world. And he said at the start of the book that he, he was taking narcolepsy pills. I'm assuming he was taking modafinil, which is actually what a lot of students use um, to like study for longer. I've had them before, um, just to focus a little bit more. But he stopped taking them, and he just set off around the world to research for this book. And thank God he did. Hell of a book. He... Before I start this, I want to say I I will be speaking from my experience with this topic. It's very strange. I might have tried more drugs than some people. Some people might have tried none. I might have a different attitude towards certain drugs, and you might have an opposing attitude. But that is the beautiful thing about the world: is that we're all different, all right? And I might talk about them in a positive way, and that is my opinion. But I'm not saying that drugs will be for everyone or that you should go out and stick some smack in your arm because that is absolutely not what I'm saying. But there will be times during this podcast when I talk from personal experience and just take from that what you will. It's not up to me what you take from it, but it is kind of... uh, It's just important that you know I'm not being a drug pusher, essentially. It's important for me to know that you know that. But let's get into the book. Start of the book, Johan Harry introduces you to three people. I would say they're characters, but they're real life people. Harry Aslinger, Billie Holiday, and Arnold Rothstein. And they seem to be the main sort of characters throughout the book. They're the ones that are prevalent the most. Now, Harry Aslinger was the main man in prohibition times in the United States. Now, prohibitionists, they were very anti-alcohol, anti-drugs, anti-everything. Before 1914 in the United States, you could go into any pharmacy and get products that contained cocaine or opioids like heroin. Coca-Cola, everyone knows this, used to have cocaine in it. And around 1914, this new snortable cocaine came out. And that's when the government were like, hold on, we don't want this happening. So the prohibition started, and in between 1920-something and 1930-something, alcohol sales were banned throughout the US, literally everything. And that is where Harry Aslinger came into it, because he was the anti-narcotics geezer. He was the guy that headed up anti-narcotics but he didn't stop at narcotics did he because he went after marijuana the evil marijuana plant as he describes it the evil marijuana plant that drives people insane and he said, <laughs> he said that um he was a racist by the way he said that if you give a black man a joint it will take four policemen to hold him down now some of you listeners might have been might smoke weed regularly or you might have just smoked it once or twice but i'm sure that you'll know it's not going to take many people to hold you down when you're baked, regardless of what skin colour you are. But his war on narcotics was uh, it was pretty br- brutal. And he went after the lower socioeconomic groups 
and he deeply feared Mexicans and black people because, like I said, racist bastard. Like he wanted drug raids. He was like, shoot, shoot first, ask questions later. He was really one of those people who he just had an agenda and he wouldn't hear anything else. How does he tie into Billie Holiday? Billie Holiday, you may have heard of her, black singer from America around 1930. She was quite famous. She died at 44 from a, well, it wasn't even a drug overdose. It's when they withdrew her drugs in hospital. That's when she was so ill from from using drugs for quite a long time and not in a healthy way either. She died. And Harry Astlinger had a big part to play in that and also just the US government and the, and the legal systems around the time and their sort of systemic racism had a big part to play in that Billie Holiday turned into turned to drugs around like 16 at 15 years old some guy came up to him and said oh your mum's asked me to look after you just come with me and she was like yeah sure why wouldn't I trust this guy pulls her into her room and he rapes her when she was screaming, people came, and, and then when the police came, they just abandoned the whole situation and said that she was probably some whore that had not got her money or something like that. So instead of arresting her for prostitution, they thought they'd let her go, and they'd let the guy go as well. I mean, I wasn't there, but I'm going to say that they were probably judging on the colour of her skin because that's what it was like in America then, and potentially nowadays, who knows, but I'm not. In America, so I can't comment. But yeah, it's pretty extreme. Harry Aslinger had his eye on Billie Holiday because she was in the public eye as a singer. She was quite famous, very good singer. She took heroin regularly. Harry Aslinger set people on her. He'd have people follow her around. They were trying to catch her out, trying to make up things about her just to get, make an example of someone in the public eye for using narcotics. So he's basically a bit of an evil bastard. Um, and the whole thing about prohibition is when they banned alcohol, obviously drug use went up as well. And um, they were afraid of heroin. This is pretty crazy. They thought it was communist heroin because it came from uh, China into like the veins of white Americans is what it says. So he says, why would the Chinese do this? They wanted to weaken the white man to build a fifth column within the United States, an army of addicts who would be willing to pay with treason for their drugs. The guy was absolutely bananas. He thought the Chinese were getting heroin to the United States so they could make an army. Absolutely crazy. Now the third character, Arnold Rothstein, he had a bit of a run-in with uh, Harry Astlinger as well, but he was pretty powerful. You you learn a lot about him by hearing the first story that's told of him. is When he was three years old, his stepdad found him standing over his older brother with a knife. And he said, what are you doing? What are you doing with your knife, son? He said, I hate him. I want to kill him. At three years old, he had enough hate in his heart to be doing that and to kind of mean it as well. Like He, was, he looked like he was going to stab him, according to what's uh, written. But through the years, Arnold Rothstein ran New York he was untouchable. He was the head of the gangs. He was the head of all violence throughout New York that was related to do with drugs. Police couldn't touch him. Police couldn't touch his gang members. Him and Harry Aslinger, they were having it out to, uh, to put it lightly, 
because Arnold Rothstein was making so much money off drugs. Because if you think about who profits from drugs, it's drug dealers at the moment, right? And this is kind of where the book goes, is that Arnold Rothstein was a dangerous man, super, super dangerous, and the gangs that he ran were super, super dangerous. And there is a lot of crime related to drugs. So there's violent crime that's related to drugs and gang violence that's probably related to, well, drugs. So where the, the war on drugs has actually created this, by making these things illegal and unregulated, you create problems like gangs, like harder, like more intense drugs being produced. You create a lot of problems, basically. And I'm of the opinion now, from reading this book, that all drugs should be controlled and essentially legal but very well controlled or decriminalized it's very it's very hard for me to give like backup evidence for my opinion without ruining certain parts of the book but let's talk about the issues that they make in terms of harder and more dangerous drugs so in the prohibition days in america when they banned the sale of alcohol the production of beer pretty much stopped. And you've probably seen on films before, like Moonshine. Moonshine's a thing in America. It's like a really, really strong alcohol. The sales of gin, like black market gin, went through the roof because people didn't want to buy a beer to have a relaxing pint to get alcohol in. Because it was illegal, they wanted something harder because they wanted to get absolutely steaming. So it, it creates a more intense way of people getting to the feeling of drinking too much or smoking too much. So when there was a war on marijuana in the 70s, so they made skunk and super skunk, it was more bang for your buck. Um, powder cocaine in the 80s, that led to crack cocaine being produced more because, once again, it's more bang for your buck. And drug dealers, they don't really give a fuck what they're selling you. They just want to make sure that they're making the most profit. I think everyone can agree with that. They're out for the profito. So that's the dangers of it. There's a couple of countries where it's worked quite well in terms of reversing the war on drugs. In Uruguay, for example, they just legalized drugs. Crime rates dropped. I can't give you the backup stats for that because that wasn't one of the things I was going to talk about. That's just popped into my mind. But uh, let's talk about Liverpool. There's going to be a lot of uh, English listeners. Everyone knows where Liverpool is. You don't need me to explain that. There was a Welsh doctor, John Marks. If you want to know what he looks like, he's a big man with a beard. And in Liverpool, he wanted to do a, an experiment. He ran a cost-benefit analysis of this experiment, and it turns out that it worked, and Margaret Thatcher approved of it. The Iron Lady approved of this experiment. And he wanted to essentially control the heroin that addicts in his area were getting. Now, it's worth noting, before he started this controlled sort of distribution of drugs, that the people that he was doing the experiment on committed 6.88 crimes per person in the 18 months prior to him running this experiment. And the idea was about creating a cleaner drugs so that they're not padded out because when you when you if you're going to buy drugs right 
the drug dealers want to make the bag heavier. So you think you're getting the same amount, but they don't want to use enough of the pure drugs. So people might put creatine in ket, or they might put fucking bleach in coke. Or in this case, in, in heroin, they're talking about, you put brick dust or cement or bleach or even coffee to make it a bit heavier. And that's going into people's veins. And they say that it's, clean heroin doesn't make people have scabby skin or look all gross. No offence to anyone that's having dirty heroin and looks a bit gross, but come on. Um, so he cleaned them up, basically. He started giving them out a prescription of the drugs that they need. Within 18 months of providing cleaner drugs, some of these people had jobs. They were complete functioning addicts. And in the 18 months following him running this experiment, the crime rate of these people dropped to 044 per person in 18 months. That's not even one whole crime. That's not even like a little robbery per person. It's half of a robbery, take another 0.6 off, which is great news. So the war on drugs is creating more crime, which I'm going to come to in a moment. But another interesting thing is when they were getting clean drugs, within 10 years, about 80% of them just stopped taking completely because they weren't they weren't completely unemployable. They weren't having to suck any penises to get their next fix. They were working and they got their fix for free from the government and then they just decided to stop, which is very, very interesting. There's a lot of interesting things in this book, by the way. Now, another way that the war on drugs has just created a whole bunch of shit is the cartels in Mexico and, and South America. And there's an interesting part in the book where he actually goes to Colombia and Johan Hari actually apologises to the Colombian people because they've been given such a bad rap. But the reason that the Colombians are given such a bad rap is because there is a war on drugs where this stuff isn't regulated. So gangsters get involved, crime rates shoot up, death rates shoot up from people trying to make money by putting dirty things in their drugs. Talking about Mexico, though, honestly, I can't begin to tell you how all over my place my brain is when I'm talking about this book because it is so, so good. But there was a story of a mother in Mexico and she went to the shops one day. I was going to say the mall, but I'm not American. So she went to the shops, she got all her kids back in the car when she'd finished. And when she got home, she noticed that she hadn't put all of her kids in the car. And I mean, that is probably not the wisest thing to do in Mexico, um, in the areas where the cartels are occupying. But shit happens we've all, all seen like home alone right these things happen to the best of us everyone leaves their kids somewhere apparently the girl that was uh, left at the shops was then abducted and she was then beaten to death for literally no reason the, she was not involved in the gang she's about 12-14 years old she was beaten to death she's beaten so badly that her face didn't explode when she was burnt afterwards and usually if you've got like a full head of brains uh, that hasn't been caved in by someone then your brain explodes when you're set on fire apparently I'm not speaking from experience on that part I've read that in the book that I'm talking about but this woman the mother went on a wild goose chase all around Mexico and figured out one thing is that the cartels own the police 
this fella belonged to one of the cartels. He admitted doing it. It was on tape. And they still couldn't prosecute him. It's absolutely berserk. And when you're reading about the cartels... Because like, they do some really inhumane things out there. They're like, kill someone, take their face off, sew it to a football. And then within a month, every cartel's doing it. It's like a competition of who can be the most brutal. Now, if you're a part of a cartel and you're listening to this, please don't come after me because I can't be bothered. But I think it's fucking wrong that you're doing that. Um, and also, shout out Mexico if you are listening. Let's get to the top of the charts. But also, don't be a prick and sew people's face onto stuff. It's just pretty wild. And the whole war on drugs has, has created this gang culture. It's like $49 billion worth of coke goes through Mexico into the US like every year. I think it's 49 to 69. And that is a lot. A lot, a lot of drugs. And there's no way that the government aren't, like don't have their fingers in the pie somewhere along the line on the borders because... How else are you going to get that much in? It's crazy. Everyone's seen... uh, There's a film with... Who is it? It's the guy who plays Mission Impossible. What's his name? Tom. Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise in a film American Made, which is where the government pay him to drop coke over the border. And then he... Like, he's meant to be undercover, but he plays them both. It's a pretty good film, but it just goes to show Americans are a bit dirty when it comes to drugs. Just my opinion. And I'm only saying that from the films I've seen and the books I've read. But back back, back to what we're talking about, which is obviously the book. There's addicts that he speaks to in America, ex-drug dealers who have now sort of started campaigning for the legalisation of drugs because they've seen what the war on drugs does to people the fact that it's the fact that people have this weird opinion on addicts i'm guilty of it as well i would call someone a crackhead or a smackhead like to take the piss out of them whereas i won't do that now because i'm starting to sort of feel a bit more compassion a bit more empathy towards people with addiction because it's it's not a conscious choice the first time is a choice but what's led them to make that choice? That's the kind of question you need to be asking. We need to be, we need to be thinking about addicts as if it's just any other type of illness, really. Because if we shun them and shun them and shun them and push them out to society, the only thing that's going to get worse is crime rate, overdoses, and probably more addicts. Because let's think about it. If you're an addict, how are you going to make money? You might start selling it. And that makes you a a salesman or a spokesperson. You could be going door to door with heroin, spreading it through to someone if you're an addict just to make money for your next fix. So addicts make addicts. And we as a society at current are not treating them with enough respect or care or empathy or compassion. So that's one thing that this book has taught me is that I need to be more compassionate towards people with addiction um, problems. Now back to the stories that are in the book. I've spoken about the Mexican woman. I've spoken about the um, guy from Liverpool. And let's talk about like what makes an addict. There's a brilliant chapter 
in the book where he speaks to a guy, Dr. Gabor Mate. He's got a good podcast with Tim Ferriss, if you want to listen to that. He's such an intelligent guy, and he says that all addictions come from childhood trauma. Now, if you have a look at it, like that is probably true somewhere along the line. Look at Billie Holiday. She had childhood trauma, became an addict. If you think about most addicts that have been in the public eye, like something bad has happened to them within their childhood, which has forced them to try and find something to escape. But they also say that it's just a chemical addiction. So there's so many different arguments as to what makes an addict. Now, childhood trauma, I don't know so much about that one. I don't really feel like I, I had any. Maybe I did. I don't know. I'll chat to my therapist about that one. Um, but when it comes to chemicals, if we're worried about the chemical addiction in, in drugs, why the fuck are we still selling cigarettes? I was addicted to cigarettes when I was 15 to 26. I'm probably still addicted to nicotine. I remember when I was 15, I used to come back home from my friend Aiden, shout out Aiden Basford. And... Um, I would come home from his house. I'd stink of fags. And I'd just tell my mum that Aidan was smoking near me. I, I'm sure they didn't believe me. Now that I'm an adult, I'll ask them. But I was hooked on it. A, a chemical was in my brain saying, yeah, you like that. Even though I didn't even like the taste of it. Cigarettes taste gross, right? Like no one actually likes to taste of cigarette. Once you've stopped for like a couple of months, you're like, oh my God, that stinks. Because you know that it's not that nice. So let's talk about the whole chemical addiction thing and let's debunk that myth because the opposite of addiction is connection. That's what Johan Hari says in his final chapters. Something to prove this is the Rat Park experiment. And that was an experiment that was done, I think it was around the 70s, by an American geezer. Shouldn't be testing on rats, but I mean, someone's got to do it and it's probably not going to be humans, is it? So the Rat Park experiment... 25 milligrams of methadone or morphine, one of the two, is put into a rat cage. One of these rat cage is completely empty. It's just bare. It's boring. Bit of a shithole, really. And then the other one is rat park. Imagine rat heaven. Imagine hamster wheels. Imagine big balls. Imagine loads of fun things for rats. Whatever rats find fun, just imagine that in a cage. The rats in the empty cages and the isolated cages took the 25 milligrams. And then the next day they did it again. And they ended up taking so much and consuming so much until they killed themselves. But the rats in the nice cages only took 5 milligrams and then they just got on with their day. Probably high as fuck. Probably made them enjoy the hamster wheel a little bit more. But they didn't do it to the point in which it was deadly. Like the rats who were bored and the rats who were isolated. So it makes you think, what what would lead someone to be an addict is, would it be a boring life? I'm spitballing ideas here. Definitely an isolated life could force people to that, force people to that escape. And it's just interesting to see that in that experiment, I know it was only done on rats, and it, you probably can't ethically do that on human beings. Or rats nowadays. No, you definitely can on rats. But it's just fascinating, isn't it? Imagine putting someone in somewhere really fun and then putting someone... If I was put in an isolated room 
and I was left there for 30 days. And they said, oh, there's some heroin there if you want to do it. Over that 30 days, and there was nothing else in there, I'd probably reach for it. However, if I was in Ed Park, super fun place with loads of cool things, wouldn't bother. So rat, we're basically, we're no better than rats, basically. That's where I'm getting at. And the chemical addiction isn't all that strong. It also matters about your environment. So your environment can make an addict as well. That's that's the actual conclusion of, of that experiment, not my conclusion. Now, you some people might have heard of this, but in Vietnam, the Americans were doing a lot of heroin and smoking a lot of opioids. But when they got back to the US, they just stopped. 90% of the people that had been smoking opioids over in Vietnam just stopped as soon as they got home because their environment had changed. They didn't need to do it anymore. They didn't depend on it. My dad said when he uh, used to work with the army in Germany, all the Americans were like, hey man, you want to smoke some shit? So I think uh, doing drugs isn't too like, uncommon for the Americans when they're abroad, which I mean, who can blame them? Get a bit excited, try some local delicacies, even if that is an opioid. So you can see the stories in this book are vast. Like I said, Dr. Gabor Mate talks about it being in childhood trauma. And then there's the Rat Park experiment. There's so many different chapters. Just having a flick through now, uh, the grieving mongoose says, like, there's there's mongoose that when their partner died will go and get absolutely blitzed. Same with elephants and buffaloes. It's just, it's. I think it's part of humans and part of nature for us to want to escape from what the norm is. And I think that's why people do extreme sports. It's why people people change their body chemistry. And I don't think people should be judged based on the chemicals they put in their body. I think that's an important thing to come from, from this book is that I will not be judging people for what they put in their body. Even though I, like I've, I've tried a few chemicals in my life, and I know which ones I don't want to do. I wouldn't be judging someone anymore for choosing it. I'd rather meet that with empathy and see sort of why they're doing it. Um, one thing that's worth mentioning, and I've, I've mentioned this in a podcast before, the one with Adam Strauss when we're talking about psychedelics, I'm touching it very briefly, um, is Eleusis. Now, it was 18 kilometers north of Athens, and it was basically a big drug pie that happened once a year where oh, this it's about 2,500 years ago, by the way. And people used to head there, drink the psychedelic potion, and they'd get in touch with the divine. They'd get in touch with God or whatever they wanted to call it. But the people that went there were like the some of the greatest minds that have ever lived on this planet. People that have written texts that have out, outlived the Bible, like uh, Aristotle, Plato, Cicero, if you're if you're into um, Stoic philosophy at all, you'll know that these people, like they set the foundations for that. And for someone like Harry Aslinger, he basically came out and said once that um, it's a it's an assault on Western foundations to alter your mind with any sort of drug. And that's basically bollocks because Western civilization was founded on psychedelics. There is a book. I'm halfway through. Uh, halfway through it on Audible at the moment called The Immortality Key which explains everything about Eleusis and about the um, drugs that were used 
it's very good, but it is, it is quite confusing. So that's why I'm only halfway through. But I will be talking about it at some stage. But, like, psychedelics, I just think they're mad. Now, I'm going to be talking from my personal experience here. Because, I mean, this is just quite a funny story. And I want to tell you how psychedelics can give you a different insight to what you would normally get. Because they give you a sense of almost feeling quite small. Not not insignificant small, but just small in the grand scheme of things, and small in the grand scheme of the universe. So if you've fallen out with someone or you're a bit upset about something that could potentially be seen as quite trivial, psychedelics might give you a different insight into that. Now, don't try this at home, but when I was in Melbourne uh, in January, my mate, who begins with, her name begins with G and rhymes with poor G, but I won't mention her name, she swapped me a tab of acid for her entry to a club. So I was like, yeah, sweet. I've never done it before. I'll try it. I'm here. I'll let my hair down. So I did it. I shouldn't have done it when I was going out to a club because that is not the place to be chucking psychedelics in your system. But I had a really good time. I left the club within half an hour and I went walking along Melbourne Beach and it was fantastic. And then about seven hours into it when it was really kicking me up the arse, I was thinking about... Um, my ex-girlfriend because I did that a lot of the time we'd only broken up about two months before it's pretty much all I thought about and I was thinking about it I thought well she's, she's alright as a person I don't have anything against her and I was like so why am I why do I keep thinking about her why am I wasting brain energy and I was like actually it doesn't matter it actually doesn't matter anymore so I rang her and I was like oh you're right um, Phoebe Phoebe, I don't know if I've ever mentioned her name on the podcast. All right, Phoebe, if you ever listen. Um, all right, I hope you're well. Uh, I just wanted to let you know that you're all right. And she was like, yeah, obviously I'm fucking all right. Cheers. And I was like, no, nah, what I mean is no hard feelings. <laughs> My point here is I don't think I would have got that insight so soon and gotten over it as soon as I did if I hadn't been tripping balls on acid on a beach in Melbourne at five in the morning. It's worth a thought, but I'm not saying go out and do a load of acid because it is still dangerous. And you have to do it safely. So you'd have to Google how to do that because apparently I don't fucking know. Um, but anyway, I've digressed there. Here's an interesting thing because I'll wrap it up with this. Is I put a poll out on Instagram the other day saying who thinks drugs are wholly bad? the whole use of drugs and I'm assuming that people answered me to this question think all drugs should be illegal completely and let me just say if anyone thinks that all drugs should be illegal completely what you're doing is playing to the hands of the gangsters and the drug dealers um, at the top at the very top who are causing so much misery for people down the line okay I'm not coming for you because my mum's part of this list I saw I saw her little answer she said that drugs are wholly bad and mum you're wrong because they're not you're I, I definitely wouldn't be the person I was today without a little bit of um, extracurricular chemical activity in terms of insights I'm talking about psychedelics I'm not talking about the other stuff but um, it's given me great insight and it's helped me become a kinder more compassionate person not only to others but quite importantly to myself so I personally I'm on the side that like drugs aren't wholly bad but what I want to do is not change the attitude of those who think it's wholly bad 
who won't ever do them because I don't care if people never do them. But what I care about now since reading this book is that people change their attitude towards people that are addicted to drugs or people that do drugs. And and people that, like those people will judge the people that are doing them. And really, who the fuck are you to judge? Who Who is anyone to judge? Who am I to judge you for judging someone? That's That's where it gets a bit confusing. But a lot of the people that answered no to that question will drink alcohol. Now, alcohol is related to so many miserable things, crime, death, addiction, yet people will still go and get blind drunk on a Saturday, but then they'll judge someone for smoking a joint. That pisses me off. But it's not about me having a little bit of a cry here. This is about me trying to get people to change their attitude so that what we can do in the future, when I say we, I mean like the few people that bother to listen to this podcast or will bother to continue listening to this podcast is that we just meet it with a little bit more compassion because there's two ends of this drug scale there are people that are addicted to heroin and and harder drugs and they're really struggling because they have to do terrible things to get those drugs that they are completely dependent on and they can't see a way out of and they're literally injecting bleach into themselves and doing terrible things to get to that point. And the reason that they're doing that is because it's illegal and it's criminalised and there's a massive, like, there's a load of judgement from a lot of people who have never even touched a drug. It doesn't make sense to me. It's, it's, it's quite sad. This book is fucking brilliant. As you, as you can see, I'm a deep thinker anyway, but this book got me thinking about so many things. There was a few other facts that I'd written down. So let's talk about America very quickly before I shut this down. Is um, America has an opioid crisis at the moment, and that comes from prescriptions from the government. But as soon as the government get an inkling that you are addicted to um, like an oxy or one of the other opioids, they'll cut your, they'll cut your supply. Now, you can keep buying Oxy on the streets but where you don't know what's in it, but three times cheaper than Oxy is heroin in America, according to Johan Hari. That's a pretty scary statistic that the government are essentially creating addicts which they will then discard of. It's just a bit messed up. So um, read the book, basically. Oh, before I tell you why you should, how I want you to think about this. How many people that take crack cocaine more than once, so it'd be considered a crack cocaine user, become addicted as as a percentage? Three, two, one. It's twenty percent. Only one in five. I thought it would be like eighty, ninety percent. And I imagine some people did as well. It's mental. We haven't got a fucking clue about these things. So, read Chasing the Screen. And I'm not telling you to go and do drugs. I want to make that very clear. And if you're upset by anything that I said, um, there's a couple resources in the link in the description for Mind and all of the resources that you need. Also... It's not an episode if it's not got a bit of a philosophy in there. And I was talking about Aristotle earlier when I was talking about all those, the boys back in ancient Greece going up and, and drinking their psychedelic potion. 
And this is quite a good one for the new year, I thought. So Aristotle, just to let you know, a drug user said, a friend to all is a friend to none. There you go. Be kind to everyone. Don't be nice to everyone this year. That's what I would say. Keep your circles tight. If you want to be friends with everyone, it'll be fucking draining. That's my uh, advice for the year. And a bit from Aristotle as well. He said some other important things as well. But you can look that up yourself. If you want to get a bookmark, link is in the description. If you want to get therapy, the link is in the description. If you've been offended by anything that I've said in this episode or upset by it, um, I was going to say email me, but don't bother. Um, you can go to the resources if you're actually, like, if you need the resources. If I've upset you, that's where you should go. But that's the end of the episode. I've done it twice. This is my second time recording it. Thank you very much for listening. You're all absolute legends. I hope this year is full of good shit for everyone because, yeah. We just need, we, we, everyone needs to up, up the game a little bit. I'm going to up the game in the podcast. Loads of book reviews coming in. The difference between who you are at the start of this year and who you are at the end of this year is the books you've read and the people you meet. I think that's a James Smith quote. Could be someone else. Anyway, that is it from me. You're all fucking legends. Thanks for listening to me chat about drugs. Sorry, mum. Sorry, dad. Love you all. Goodbye. <laughs>